on the air. Okay, thank you. Cool. Well, let me let me pray again, if you don't mind. Um, Father, thank you for these guys and for this group. Um, thank you for the opportunity to share your words, um, to share my heart, and uh, pray that you'd guide me and be with me. And pray in Jesus' name, Amen. All right, so we're going over Acts 10 tonight. So let me read this for you. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius! And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is your reason for coming? And they said, Cornelius, the centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. 
I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out on even the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So thanks for sticking with me through that. I know it's a a long one. Such a strange, amazing, incredible story. Kind of weird. Um, And I think the main umbrella point of this passage is that God is extending his kingdom to even the Gentiles. He's extending it to everyone. Um, So in order to understand that a little bit, we're going to look at three things. One is the paradigm shift for God's people. Two is how the gospel saves the Gentiles. And three, what does that mean for us? So the paradigm shift is the gospel that saves them. And what does this mean for us? So first, the paradigm shift This is huge for Peter. Like, can you imagine how weird this is for him? Like, if you had a vision that a sheet, like, dropped out of heaven and had, like, reptiles and birds and, like, animals all over it, and someone said to kill one of them and eat it. Like, that's weird for us. But, like, Peter is a Jew. Like, he hasn't even had bacon. Like, so, like, how does he expect to, like look at a reptile and be like, hmm, you know? So this is so weird for him. Um, And just to emphasize that, in Leviticus 11, here with what authority God gives this decree, 
For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy. For I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Notice how God says, like, I'm holy, you're supposed to be holy. Don't eat this. I'm holy, you're supposed to be holy. It's, like, pretty serious. And he's saying, like, this will defile your souls, you know? So, Peter, this isn't just a matter of, like, custom. It's, like, defilement and, like, holiness. Um, So, Peter's hesitation is understood. Is like, no, Lord, like, I've never eaten anything like that. Um, but notice how God responds. And he says, do not call what I have made clean common. So it's, it's sort of like a jarring, like, he's coming, God's coming back, like pushing back, you know? And it's like, it's like what, what made this authoritative in the first place? Like, what made these things unclean? It was God telling them by his authority you know, in Leviticus earlier in that chapter, it says, these things shall be unclean to you because I say so. <laughs> you know, so now he's saying, because I say so, these are okay. Um, and it's just God sort of showing his authority. Um, and also notice he doesn't limit it to food. God doesn't say, do not call food that I call clean common. He says, do not call what I have made clean common. And it's just a short step to think, well, if the food isn't unclean, then the people who are unclean for eating it now are not made unclean by eating that. So as we'll see, you know, this progression is very clear in Peter's mind. So one question that comes up is like, why do we have these laws in the first place? Right? Why why have these laws that you know, some of them are practical and had health reasons. Um, there's rules about safety, but some laws like Jewish laws were just like, you can't have more than one type of thread in a garment. Like, that's really weird. That's not practical. Um, And so, Paul tells us the answer in Galatians 3. He says, why then the law? He anticipates your question. And he says, so then, this is Galatians 3, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So he's saying the law was meant to be a guardian for us, And he also talks about how the promise was through Abraham. This was God's plan from the beginning. God isn't like, well, I started out with the law and it's not really working out, so now I'm going to switch the whole system. Like, this was the plan from the beginning. In Genesis 18, Genesis 22, and Genesis 26, God promises Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through your offspring. And I was reading this commentator said, it's offspring, like singular, not offsprings, like a lot. So some were arguing that it's like Abraham's offspring, who is Jesus, referring like everyone's going to be blessed through Jesus. But sort of a side note. But either way, this was God's plan. In Isaiah 49, 6 says, 
it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So now, before Abraham didn't know you know, when or to what extent the nations would be blessed, but now we have a specific, like, my salvation is going to reach the ends of the earth. And this is in the Old Testament. Um, and Jesus smashed the first hole in this wall dividing Jews and Gentiles when he says in the Gospel of Mark, nothing that enters a man defiles him. And Mark, you know, in the Gospel of Mark it says, and Jesus declared all food clean. Um, and so, again, like this being so hard for Peter, this huge paradigm shift, notice the repetition in this story. You have Peter... This vision happens to him three times, kind of saying, like, this is not a mistake. And then, for us, the readers, the whole story is given twice, once in what I just read. And then in Acts 11, Peter retells the whole story to these other Jewish believers called the Circumcision Party, which doesn't sound like a very fun party to me. Um, But then you have Cornelius' vision that's told four times by four different sources. You have... Luke, who's the narrator. Then you have the messengers from Cornelius telling them. Then you have Cornelius himself telling Peter. And then you have Peter retelling it to those people. So there's just like all sorts of like repetition. It's almost kind of annoying. But it's just the whole point is like, no, this is not an accident. Like God is being very clear. This is a new era. And I'm shifting your paradigm, (laughs) basically. Um, So now that we've kind of looked at this paradigm shift... What is it that actually saves the Gentiles now that it's been opened up to them? How does God go about saving them? And the first thing I'd note is that it's God that saves them. It's not Peter who saves them. If we look at this story, we look at the setup. Okay, so Cornelius is exposed to Judaism and he develops an honor and fear for the Lord, but he's outcast, he's a Gentile. And then we have him getting a vision. Then we have Peter getting a vision and the, the men coming and the spirit telling him, hey, go with these men. And then he goes and he gives like this very short, simple sermon. And this is like, boom! <laughs> it's like they're almost like speaking in tongues and extolling, worshiping God. And it just like flabbergasts him. It even says, um, Jerem Bars in his book, Heart of Evangelism, talks about how like the first words out of Peter are like, yeah, it's like really not, I'm not really supposed to be here. It's like unlawful, but God has kind of shown me that it's okay. So what do you want? <laughs> He's like not even that like nice, you know? It seems like he could have come in and said like, hey, God is like accepting you, like, you know? But he's just like, what do you want? <laughs> you know? So it's like what actually saves him is God. God saves them. God has orchestrated all this stuff. And he, out of his mercy, despite Peter, uses him to, to move his salvation into the Gentiles. Um, so that's the first thing I'd note. But it's God acting through the gospel. Um, and that's, again, that's part of the, the paradigm shift, is 
you know, what, what do you think Cornelius was expecting? You know, he gets this vision. He says, go get Peter, and he's going to come talk to you. It's like, I wonder what he was thinking, because he, maybe he was thinking, well, maybe there's some, like, Jewish rites of entry into Israel that I, have, I could take, you know, and maybe there's some laws and customs and traditions I could adopt, and that, you know, then I'll be acceptable to God. Or maybe he's thinking, you know, this is the Messiah himself, and maybe that's why he bows down. I don't, I don't know. Um, but it's obvious he's confused because he's like worshiping Peter. But whatever the case, I'm, sh- I'm pretty sure he wasn't expecting that just hearing this message was going to be what saved him and believing in faith. Um, so it wasn't their adoption of Jewish laws and customs. It wasn't circumcision. It wasn't not eating pork and reptiles and stuff. And it was God who saved them through the gospel. And it's, it's God saving them through hearing about Jesus and then believing in faith. And, and it says, while Peter was still saying these things, like the Holy Spirit is poured out on them. So their conversion like literally interrupts his sermon like that would be awesome that would that'd be cool if it happened right now <laughs> but i don't i don't know i'm sure i'm not sure i would want that to happen because it would be freaky but like you know he gives this short sermon and then boom they're like speaking in tongues and extolling god what's up with that well it's like it's like an aftershock of the pentecost because the apostles had had this experience earlier where in the upper room and that happened to them, you know. It says the Spirit came like tongues of fire and they were you know, speaking in tongues. It's like this dramatic experience, you know. And for Peter and the other believers, it's like irrefutable evidence. Like God has accepted them. Like they have the Holy Spirit. They're one with God. They're in Christ. So who am I to like now say, okay, well, you can't be in our little group of, you know, these customs because you're not following them. So Peter says, who can withhold water for baptism? It's not like, hey, let's baptize. It's like, how could we not baptize them? Um, So they have this radical conversion. Um, So we have the paradigm shift. We have the gospel. So so what does that mean for us? I'd like to uh, start with a story. My, um, My junior year in RUF, I had thought a lot about justification through faith um, for to put a theological term on it and just that I wasn't burdened by like works and having to earn favor with God and it like really changed my life and I was so determined to like tell people about that um, and one of my friends who's a freshman we met over coffee and we were talking about faith and I said you know where where are you in relation to God and the faith and like many people, he said, well, I'm, you know, I'm not really reading my Bible like I should be. I was better about that in high school. And I just looked at him and I said, like, why do you have to read your Bible? And he's just sort of dumbfounded, like, well, I, I don't know. It's just like what you're supposed to do, right? I mean, it's just the custom. It's like, that's the Christian checklist. You, like, read your Bible and you pray. And I said, like, you don't have to read the Bible to be saved. You don't. And you don't have to pray for God to love you. But what I will say is, 
if you want to hear about the God who saved you and the God who loves you, I really encourage you to read the Bible and pray because that's where you're here about that. In the Bible and praying is where you're here and experience the fact that you don't need to do that to be saved. Um, and he was just sort of dumbfounded. I see this in his eyes. I could just see like this weight lifted off of him. And it seems sort of like a trite thing, right? Like, don't read the Bible. And it's like, you don't have to feel guilty about that. But if you're hanging your eternity, you're trying to justify yourself through something, like the gospel says, you don't have to do that. And that's huge. You know, that was huge for him. Like, this burden was like lifted off of him. Next week I saw him and he was like, hey, so I've been reading through Galatians. And I was like, what the heck? You know? It's like, that's the gospel, you know? Um, it's gospel motivation. And um, we're actually talking about um, Galatians, which is funny because that's where Paul confronts Peter about, dude, you forgot that it's it's okay for Gentiles to eat this stuff because like Peter had stopped eating with Gentiles, and that's like a lot about a lot of Galatians is about that, and Paul saying, remember the gospel. Um, so, like. Peter, like Cornelius, like my friend that I met with, when we hear the gospel, we undergo a paradigm shift. We don't have, most of us haven't experienced the Jewish tradition and customs, but we all create our own laws and we all create our own strategies to save ourselves. Um, Everything in our world says, do this and earn my favor do this and you'll be happy. Buy this, have these friends, and you'll be there. You know, whatever that is. Um, but our God is the God that says, I've saved you. Follow me. I love you. This is how you love me back. It's the God who acts first. Um, so that's kind of like how the, this affects us personally. And, you know, I was thinking about this and I was thinking Christianity is really the most comfortable for broken, humble people who have nothing to lose. (laughs) Because it's really easy to say, I don't have any other options. You know, I I just have you, Jesus. So if you're putting a lot of stock in yourself, it's going to be hard because you're going to have to give that up. So belief in Jesus is like saying, I got nothing. My stock is in you, Jesus. Um, so that's that's how this affects us. What about us loving other people in our culture? I was thinking about this. You know, we have a really relativistic culture. Our world is getting more and more diverse, and it's just every day you're confronted with hundreds of interactions with people with just different worldview, contradictory beliefs. You know. We're at a point where it's like we can't die on that hill every time we have that interaction because you can't our society can operate. So it's been maybe by necessity that our culture is like we have to promote tolerance, right? Tolerance. And and this is what I was thinking about is that relativism says what you believe doesn't matter and I'll tolerate you. But Christianity says what you believe has eternal significance. And I love you. 
You know, that's what Jesus says is like, you're wrong about this, but I'll die for you. You know, and to me, that's a lot more appealing than I'll tolerate you. You know, you have your truth, I have mine. Um, Christianity is also the worldview that says love your enemies. How ridiculous is that? How like preposterous is that to you to like to have to love your enemies? You know. So, and the church, you know, isn't very good at this. I'm not very good at this most of the time. Um, but, but that's what we're called to, you know. God, what God has made clean, do not call common. Um, so, and, it, and the only way that we can do that and live that sort of life, um, not just tolerating others, but loving them enough to, to say, you're wrong and I love you, um, with gentleness, with truth and grace. Um, the only way we can do that is if we're secure and solid in our own love, with the, our, that Jesus' love is surrounding us. If we're solid in that, then we can love our enemies like Christ loved his enemies. So let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this passage. I thank you for these strange stories and the ways that you work. Um, It's just wrapped in mystery. And um, thank you for the the gospel. It's so different than our world. It's so upside down um, that it's, it's not us that earn your favor. You say that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. Um, so I, I pray that you'd help us to believe that. I pray that you'd pour out your spirit on us like you poured it out on Cornelius and his family and friends. That um, you'd respond with praise and thanks. And, um, that you could change our lives and our hearts towards other people. To accept other people and love them um, despite their beliefs. And uh, God, only you can do this in our hearts. And we ask for that. And we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.